0: Welcome, everybody, to the third episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blythe Brumley. And on this show, we talk about the tech world. We talk about B2B marketing. We talk about the attention and creator economy and how it all fits into the world of logistics. Now, being a sort of like a newer show, we've kind of uh, taken a little bit of of time in getting some of our uh, links all set up. But we got those ready for you now. So now, if you go to Spotify, if you go to Apple Podcasts, even on YouTube, all you have to do is search for Cyberly and you should be able to find and subscribe to our content. You can also subscribe to FreightCast, which has all of the FreightWaves podcast all listed within their platform. So I'm sure that there is something that you will find that you will absolutely love within that podcast feed. But if you're looking for this specific feed for Cyberly, all you have to do is do a search for it now on your favorite podcast app and you will be able to find it. And our first, First two episodes, we talked with Shay Dixon and we also talked with Albin Brook. Shea is the CEO of Allegiant Logistics, and she had some valuable gems on how she's out there creating some great content. She's even going into Instagram DMs in order to source carriers, which I thought was pretty brilliant. And then on the flip side, we had Alvin Brooke. He is the head of marketing over at Buzz. Really encouraging podcasting stats, one of which that if you are creating a podcast and your podcast gets, I think, around 37 plays within the first week, you are in the top 50% of all podcasters, which is incredible. So if you want to go a little bit deeper on both of those two guests, be sure to find the Cyberly feed and you'll be able to watch each of those interviews. But for today's show, we're going to talk about connecting the dots through the customer journey. And the ways that we do that is by measuring the results of those successes, but also by figuring out what the customer wants to begin with, how they want to be sold to, how they want to be contacted. And today's guest, Caitlin Bourgeron, is going to be breaking that all down for us. She's created something that's called a sheet, which helps you in order to conduct interviews with your customers so you can find those little trigger moments that made them ultimately want to pick up the phone, make a purchase from you and and just reach out to you in order to further that business relationship. It's really brilliant. I purchased the sheets back in December and they have really been a game changer for me in my own personal marketing. So I'm excited to talk with her today in order to break it down and how we can apply that to the world of B2B marketing and the logistics space because Let's face it, a lot of us need help in that area. And the way that she sort of made it all make sense to me is she said, don't sell me a bed, sell me a good night's sleep so then I can wake up early in the morning and go tackle that workout like I always wanted to do. And that to me was a moment that I take with me for all of my marketing now because I'm not just selling someone a really good feature. I'm selling them on who that person wants to become. So I'm really excited to talk with Caitlin. She'll be on later in the show. And it sort of might sound a little confusing with a lot of the numbers that we're about to dive into, but I want to be able to give you guys some context behind some of the content that you might be seeing out in the wild. Maybe you've already started creating content or you're thinking about doing it in the future. So we're going to break down what some of these metrics mean. And and the reason we want to do this is because buyers have more power than they ever have before. They have a world of research at their fingertips that they can Google, that they can look for. And and we really want to be the educational providers of what our product does, how we can help them reach that inspirational, that aspirational goal that they're trying to go after and and without doing it in a salesy way. I, I think that a lot of companies out there, they're still trying to do a lot of the same traditional marketing, especially when it comes to digital, they're trying to go after, you know, that the paid keywords, and they're trying to go after, you know, the ebook downloads and hope that those customers or hopefully that those leads eventually become into customers. But what you ultimately find is that while those are valuable, they're not exactly the moment that people actually make that purchase decision. And so if we want, if we know that now, if we know that the buyers have have more information than they ever before, then we need to know the difference between when they're in buy mode and when they're in research mode. And then that way we can make sure that how we talk about our products and how we talk about our service is, is geared towards one of those phases that your buyer is in. So let's start with what is working and what isn't. And the only way you can really know that is by going through your own platforms first and going through the process of auditing those platforms. So think of your website, think of your email campaigns, think of your social media marketing and how you're you're out there publishing content, which ones of those sections are working and how do we have some additional context behind how they're working especially for the organic post. Because if you're doing well organically and you're getting some of that that great responses, say, say you make a post on LinkedIn and it really resonates and you go through all of your comments that you're getting or your likes that you're getting, who is, com- who is commenting, who is liking, and ultimately what are their job titles and do they fit into your buyer persona or how, how some people call it your ICP. So that is really what we're going to dive into today. We're going to get a little bit more context so we connect, so we can connect all of those dots. But first, we gotta we gotta do a little digging because some of these numbers out here, I think, are a little deceiving, and it causes a lot of creators out there to worry about the vanity metrics and not worry about the right metrics. And let's just sort of run through a few. So for video, what does a, what does a view count for video? And let's look at YouTube first. YouTube you can watch a video for 30 seconds, between 11 and 30 seconds before YouTube counts it as a view. And that is vastly different from some of these other platforms because, for example, Twitter, it only takes two seconds and you don't have to have the audio on for it to count as a view. You're looking at a graphic right now. And and I think that this graphic is a little bit more, uh, maybe a little bit more outdated because Twitter actually changed their metrics from three seconds. Sort of the common. Uh, the the common denominator for a lot of different social media platforms is that three seconds Facebook does it Instagram does it Twitter used to do it but they've since changed it to two seconds and you don't even have to have the audio on which is the craziest part to me because as you're scrolling you could just accidentally just you could be looking at at something else in your feed and then all of a sudden you're counting that that video view is being counted towards you as if you actively watched it. So it's a little deceiving when you see, you know, maybe a, a Facebook video that's racked up millions of views and, and maybe only thousand, you know, a, a few thousand of them are actually active viewers who are digesting that content. A few of the other ones you'll see on this graphic, obviously Periscope, Twitter just got rid of Periscope, but they're going to be replacing it with, soon with Twitter video and some other additional features. Instagram Live, Instagram Stories, and they've since at Instagram Reels, which is essentially a copycat version of TikTok. Um, TikTok actually counts your views as soon as you as soon as you watch it. But their their feed is a little bit different from some of these other feeds where if you open up the TikTok app, video starts to play automatically but if you are on other platforms yes the video plays automatically but it you have to scroll in order to see that different content with TikTok it's just as soon as you open up the app it's sort of ingenious that that they do this this way because it doesn't require an action on your part. You open up the app and immediately you're digesting content. Whereas these other platforms, sure, the video will start to auto play, but you have to actually click on a sound. You have to click on the little volume notification in order to hear the audio. And so knowing the difference between those two platforms or between these platforms and how they count as a view is insanely, it, 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 it is well worth it to know which of these metrics matter and which of these metrics don't. I would say out of all of these probably YouTube is the most valuable and Facebook and Instagram being a little less value. Twitter even more so because it only counts for 2 seconds and you have a view on a video that someone might just be scrolling through the timeline and not actually watching and digesting. So if you're noticing, you know, maybe some other creators have an insanely high view count or maybe your views aren't as 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 big then you need to know You need to put a little bit more context behind those views in order to really know what's resonating with your target audience and which ones aren't. Now, LinkedIn is a little bit trickier. It's the same three seconds, but let's give it some more context. A view means the content was viewed. For videos, the count happens only after three seconds, so we can't be sure what a meaningful view is. So in other words, you re- did you really glance at a specific either video or advertisement on a, say, a, a, a business page, but perhaps not long enough to take the information in properly? For other post types, LinkedIn says that they're judging whether content has actually been viewed is tough. LinkedIn things such as clicks to see more. So think of whenever you're looking at a LinkedIn post and you see the text, see more, that is a tracking mechanism that LinkedIn is using to know whether you're just passively scrolling or if you're actually interested in that content. So to take it even a step further, you'll notice that with some of these posts, especially with some of the marketers that I follow, what they'll do is they'll put one sentence at the very top line. Then they'll add a couple spaces after that first sentence, and then they'll write the, the length of almost say like a, a a tweet storm or like a small blog post, they'll write a character. I think LinkedIn has a character limit for text posts of up to 1400 characters, but that's why you will see that first sentence and then a couple spaces and then the rest of the text, because that gives people a little bit more insight, including LinkedIn of how people are digesting that content. Because if they're clicking that see more then they legitimately want to see more. And so in that case, what you want to do, is you wanna make that hook, you wanna make that first line on LinkedIn super attractive so then that way people will be more likely to read the rest of that post. So that's the video portion of things what about email? Email is, pr- is probably the tool that we use most often in the logistics space and uh, you know, similar to other industries, of course. But we have some additional data from HubSpot that tells us some uh, industry benchmarks when it comes to open rates and when it also comes to click-through rates. So when we're talking about open rates, open rates in particular are kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's when somebody opens your email. But there are a lot of variables to get somebody to open up that email. Uh, what is your subject line? Does it incite curiosity? Does it speak to that person's specific need during that time of the day? A lot of email software out there will pro—it's programmed in their system to send you an email at a specific time of the day because all of their email algorithms have have actually looked at your usage patterns, and so they try to send the email. I know Mailchimp does it. I believe HubSpot does it. But it's a, an additional step for for users to take whenever you're thinking about sending out your different campaigns, what does that subject line look like? What time of day are you sending it? Is it during peak time? Is it you know Monday morning at 6am when somebody is coming into the office and they probably have a weekend's worth of emails that they have to sort through? Are you trying to send it at a different time of day? And so knowing all of that insight into how you know it affects your open rates can really go a long way. Now, Industry Benchmarks when we're talking about the open rates, manufacturing was one of the top spots when it comes to open rates with 23% software and business each had 20%. So that means the amount of emails that are being sent, these are the open rates, according to the industry. And so if you're trying to target anyone within these different fields, or within these different industries, then you want to make sure that you're sending it at a time that they're more likely to get it and open it. Because it's not just your job to to make a great subject line. You also want to make sure that the time of day that you're sending is optimal for that person. And then also, what does the from line say? It, it, for a lot of people, especially I can speak for me, that when I send emails, I have my first name, And then I also have my company name. So it has Blythe at Digital Dispatch as the from name. And the reason I do that is because maybe some people only know my name and maybe some people only know my business name. But if I'm sending it from the from address as Blythe at Digital Dispatch, then they're going to know, they're going to connect the dots, they're going to put those two together, and hopefully they will see that and be conditioned either now or in the future to open that email in the future because hopefully and ideally the information that you're sending is valuable to your audience. They're not reporting you as spam, they've actually signed up to receive communications from you, so you're doing all of the right things, but then it's just about optimizing those little parts of the email including the from name, the subject line, and then those first few letters of the email that shows up after the subject line, make sure that you're optimizing those so that you can get the user to open up the email. That's only step one. Step two is to get them to take the action that you want them to take once they open up the email. So, is it valuable? Is it, is it, uh, is, is does that information speak to, uh, more for your benefit or to their benefit? It, it, do you want them to check out, you know, a latest podcast or a latest feature update? Maybe you have a new lane that you've just started servicing or a new commodity that you've just started servicing. So, all of those things, keep that in mind. Because ultimately you want that email to have an action associated with it. And so with HubSpot's other numbers, when it comes to benchmark data, as far as click through rates, we have, and to back it up a little, a click through rate is, is sort of exactly what it sounds like it's you have a button within the email or you have a text link or you have a reply it's a it's a click through action or a click through rate of what you want that user to take do you want them to go to a specific page on your website do you want them to follow you on social media so all of these things you need to sort of keep in mind as far as the click through rate is concerned but hubspots as far as their benchmark data manufacturing again had one of the highest as far as the click through rate at 9.31% business came in next with 8.01% and then software at 7.18% so this is after you've done all of the hard work of creating the email figuring out what you want to send to your customer and then you sent it to them and then they opened it what was the next step that they take that, that they took did they immediately trash Did they uh, report you as spam? Hopefully not. Did they then take an action? And so knowing that the manufacturing, again, had one of the highest at 9.31%. And so having that sort of insight into those industry benchmark numbers can help you as you're formulating your campaigns and you're sending them out. But it's, again, don't worry about the vanity metrics. Worry about increasing the metrics that you already have in order to get to a place where you can say, hey, I'm competing with some of the bigger, the bigger guys out here, my emails are getting opened, and they're taking the desired action that I want them to take. So that's email, we've run through video, we've run through email now, let's run through some of the podcast numbers. And I mentioned earlier in the show when referring to Albin's episode, which he's the the head of marketing over at Buzzsprout, which is a podcast hosting company. And he went through all of their data and and, and they repeatedly go through all of their data. But he said, among the more than 100,000 podcasters on their platform, he says, if your podcast gets 37 plays within the first week of release, you are in the top 50% of all podcasters, which is really a really encouraging number. Because if you look at it, this is one of those things where you, you maybe you've been you've been creating content for a while, or, or you just are maybe at a place where you're sort of frustrated with the performance or the lack thereof of some of your content, 37 plays is really achievable for a lot of podcasters out there. And if you are actively out there creating content and your podcast is getting more than that, then you know that you're even in the upper echelon of, of creators out there. And again, it goes back to worrying about the right metrics not the vanity metrics a few more stats before we bring in our guest caitlin is another one is you know we talk about content and we talk about advertising which deserves its own show in and of itself um but you know podcasting and and getting your viewers to notice you and then what happens after they notice you is you want them to come to your website and take an action and so after they do that you know what kind of data are you working with? Do you have HubSpot data on your website? Do you have Google analytics data on your website? And are you getting clean data? It's probably one of the most important things because there's Google filters that you can set up more than 40% of all internet traffic is bot related. So you need to make sure that in Google analytics, that you're collecting that clean data by, by filtering out all of these spam sites and HubSpot. It's as easy as just clicking a little button. You click a little button to filter out the, the known spam and bot sites. These filters are updated pretty regularly by both of these companies, but you need to make sure that the data you're looking at is clean. So knowing that first, then you can find out which pages on your site you want your visitors to convert on. And then if they're not converting already, what is the ideal pathway that you want them to convert? Because then advertising, content creation, uh, email marketing, none of this matters if you don't have a good flow setup on your site. You can waste a lot of time. You can waste a lot of money by creating content and spending a ton on advertising and then filtering that traffic over to your website only to have the conversion rates just plummet because you haven't optimized that final endpoint. So think of that as. Think of uh, uh, putting the context behind all of this different data before you, you know, start with a massive advertising campaign or a massive new marketing campaign, a, a, you know, a new launch, anything like that. Make sure the flow is right on your site. Make sure you're collecting that clean data and then put that data into perspective. So we're not going to get obsessed with vanity metrics. We're going to track the compliments. We're going to track the questions that are being asked within our social media posts organically because if those perform well organically, they will likely perform well with some paid advertising strategies behind it. And so you do all of this by paying attention to what things are performing organically well that's leading to conversion. So then that way you have a better, a clearer path to create that messaging in the future. Now, when it comes to, you know, sort of the the research process and the, the, the methods that we can take, let's go ahead and bring in our guest, Caitlin. She is the CEO of Customer Camp and a lead trainer for Customer Camp, and she is just Stellar at making sense of what your customers are doing and what you can the information that you can find out from your customers. And and Caitlin, uh, thank you for coming on the show today because it was really a light bulb moment for me back in December when I saw that you had launched your clarity call sheets. And it was this exact thing that I was struggling with at that very moment. And it was the I think it was one of the fastest purchases that I've ever made when it comes to sort of a, you know, finding out a problem, dealing with it, and then paying somebody to come up with the solution for me or to provide that guidance. And so that light bulb moment, especially in your call sheets, was the don't sell me a new bed, sell me a good night's sleep so I can finally be that person that quits hitting snooze and wakes up first thing in the morning to get that workout in. Now, you are obviously a big fan of making the customer the superhero but you gotta know what makes them tick. I don't have to tell you that. You actually inspired me to learn more about that. And your tagline is whoever gets closer to the customer wins. Can you break down what that methodology means?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me and hi to everyone watching in internet land. So that tagline is hard earned. Let's just say that lots of people who are probably watching, I've made some mistakes myself in the past, allowed assumptions to lead us into uncharted waters and had to deal with the consequences of those. And coming out of those experiences, you know, having run a marketing agency and then done a tech startup, the thing that I kept seeing consistently in my own business when we were doing our tech startup and then after the fact, when I was working with founders, was there was just this lack of awareness as to why the customer bought, you know, even if they had a lot of clarity on who the customer was, there was not enough visibility into what really makes the customer tick, click and buy. And tons of data to support this across the marketing industry across the you know, the tech and high growth industry. But essentially, the more you understand your customer, the better, you understand what's happening in the real world, not just stuff we can track online, but the real world um, as to what motivates them to consider and try and love new products, the better chances you have of succeeding. And we see this again and again. So that's where the tagline comes from.
0: So when you were creating the, these clarity call cheat sheets, what was that? Walk me through that moment that, that that was the light bulb moment for you, that this is something that we're running into repeatedly. This is something that we probably need to create a resource behind. What was that light bulb moment like for you? Well, I
1: think a lot of founders and marketers are told you need to understand the customer. And that blanket statement is true and also really frustrating because if you don't go into customer research or customer interviews, knowing what to ask, what you're listening for, how to kind of like gather the right insights from conversations, it really feels like aimless wandering and a waste of time. And so people kept being given this advice of, oh, you need to talk to customers, you need to talk to customers but not being told how to do it. And it was really frustrating. And I got that same advice, you know, when I was doing my own tech company, everyone says this to startup founders in particular, you need to do customer discovery, but they don't tell you how. And so seeing this over and over experiencing it myself and then discovering this better way, um, the better way being inspired by jobs to be done, which is an innovation framework, It's becoming more popular now, but it was traditionally only applied to product design, not marketing. Mm. And it's so useful for marketing too, because when you really understand why customers hire your products, what it is they're trying to get done, what jobs they're trying to do, the context of their situation, it really helps you to market smarter. And Mm. so that insight led to, okay, people don't know how to do this. And they don't know how, what questions to ask or how to have these conversations. So let's make a resource that makes that like super quick and easy.
0: And you were also, you, you were training active, uh, you know, other companies, you had uh, training seminars that other companies paid you to come in to do a lot of that training. And so is that sort of the, the process of, of, of how you discovered, I guess, sort of the common pit, pitfalls that maybe customers fall into or, or protect? Uh, businesses fall into before they actually ever reach out to a customer in the first place? What are some of those pitfalls and how did you discover them during your training sessions? Yeah. So,
1: I mean, the reason that I even started this company, if we want to go way back is again, like I had had my own marketing agency I started in 2010. We did great work for our clients. Our clients were happy. We helped them grow. We got lots of success. You know, we work with clients like target and holiday and we did not talk to a lot of customers. <laughs> um, and between, you know, 2010 and fast forward to, you know, 2000, 17 or when i actually 2018 when i started customer camp a lot changed in the marketing world right a lot changed in terms of competition how we could measure things and how much the platforms that we as marketers were relying on and the channels that we had relied on were and yeah. able to help us achieve our goals. So everything was changing, but marketers weren't really changing their methodologies that I could see. And so, you know, in that time frame, I started this tech company. We did really good on the marketing side because that was my background. We were growing really quickly in terms of acquiring new users, but they were not sticking around and using the product and inviting their friends, which for us was the stink of death <laughs> because we were a network. And so when I closed down that company, I was really lucky. I had a, um, my main investor had said, okay, like you, your team was really good on the marketing side. We've got all these incredible product teams who are so good at building awesome software and solutions, not so good at making sure anybody knows they exist. So maybe you can help some of them. So I sat down with a lot of these brilliant teams, a lot of them engineering led, um, and learned very quickly that while they had these incredible products that could really change lives, they did not know exactly who they were for or how to get those people to discover them. And so I kept seeing this pattern and that became the impetus for what, what is customer camp, which is helping teams to understand who their customers are and why they buy. And that journey of like, there's gotta be a better way because so many teams are struggling with this. That's what led to, you know, training people on how to do custom discovery interviews. There's just stuff that you can get from these calls. They are calls with buyers. I should clarify mm-hmm. that. It's calls with buyers, people who have bought your product, people who can actually learn what's actually happened and what led them to you versus like hypothetical buyers that you think mm-hmm. might be a good fit. Like there's things you can learn from deeply exploring that buying journey that are so rich and you can't get with any other research method.
0: And it almost, it feels like a, like a buyer persona. Like we've been taught as marketers for like 10 years to create the infamous, you know, five different buyer personas. And, you know, uh, I, I don't know, middle-aged Mary is who we're labeling these people as instead of actually discovering what was that trigger that that made them buy. And And that's what I love about your process is because it's sort of, Forget about the stuff that doesn't really matter. Let's find out about those trigger points and then sell to them what they want to become, eventually become. And and Mm -hmm. I love this quote that you gave in a recent podcast interview. You said you wanted to make sure that we were eating our own dog food. And when, when you were talking about creating the clarity call sheets, and I love that because I feel like so many marketers out there they will do a great job at preaching the value of things, but they're not actually in the trenches of knowing what is working and what is not working and how that's exclusive to their business and how it could be a- applicable to other businesses out there. So, so tell me about what went into the launch of the Clarity Call Sheets, because you spent cl- what, close to two years working on this before you actually launched. I
1: would say we spent two years knowing we wanted to build this. Like that we were doing the, you know, we were doing our training and our workshops and a lot of what went into the cheat sheets had been done in live workshops. So Mm -hmm. those workshops were done typically in person, of course, then COVID happened and everything moved online. Um, But it was done in this process where I would come in, I'd sit down in front of the room, I would explain The idea of why people really buy, which, as you just summarized beautifully, has nothing to do with who they are necessarily and everything to do with who they want to become. And when we lump people into personas and segments based on common characteristics, we miss a lot of insight that can be really useful. And so I would sit down and I would kind of explain the process to people. I would then demonstrate how to do an interview, teaching them how to listen for the right things, showing them actually how it works. And then I would give them the questions that they could use getting started, a interview summary that they could use after the fact to make sure they listened for the right things. And I would tell them go off and practice because like anything, this is a skill you need to practice. And so that was being done for, I was doing that workshop for about two years um in person and online but always live and the thing that um that i knew was that people didn't people wanted this resource but they wanted to be able to use it quickly get value right away they didn't want to have to sit through a long video based course on it they wanted to just know what should i be asking what should i be listening for give me the meat right away you can make it fast because marketers were also busy and so that's what led to the kind of structure of how I created the product making them, you know, cheat sheets as opposed to a video based course or a live cohort that sort of thing and really the messaging that went into it and how I you know the promise of the product that was just from having a lot of conversations, interviewing our own customers who come through our workshops, knowing what they cared about and then echoing that language back to them on our sales page. So, you know, I, I we we do the work <laughs> we're doing it right now because we're kind of working on a new thing. And we're leveraging all of the interviews we've done with the cheat sheet buyers. Now and we're figuring out what's the next step for them. What do they want from us next? So you have to do the work.
0: Yeah you're you're eating your own dog food for lack of a better phrase. And and so when you talk about the these cheat sheets, what give us a sample of of what some of the questions that you ask your ask the buyers in order to ask their potential buyers or people that have already purchased from them.
1: For sure. So the most important thing that listeners should know is that the purpose of this interview is not to ask people for their opinions on your product. um, Although you'll get those as well, people will freely offer that information. But it is to really understand and basically document their buying journey. So what you Mm want to do is you want to think about their buying journey as having a timeline. It begins with a trigger, a moment where that person first starts thinking, oh, something is not working with my current solution. Like there's a change that I want to make. I don't know how to make it yet. Maybe I don't know what options are out there, but something's not working. From that trigger, they kind of move through the buying journey to the stage where they actually discover your product. They're evaluating it. Maybe they're comparing it to other options in the market, eventually buying and trying it. So what you want to do is you want to fill in all the information that's happening along that buying journey. What's so exciting about this style of interview is that typically the type of data that we get from customers is all about what happens kind of like once they discover us. So, you know, there's enormous amounts of data we can gather about our customers, like where are they coming from? How long are they staying on our site? What products are they reviewing? All that stuff. But what we don't know from the tools and resources that are available is all the stuff that happens before they discover us. And that's the stuff we really want to know, right? If we want to get more people to discover us. So the purpose of this interview is to really get that full picture. Some of the questions that we ask, it's around kind of pulling that information out of people. So what was going on in your world when you first realized that you might need a new solution? that will often reveal what the trigger moment was for them. And the trigger moment is often something that happens in their personal life, something that you can't see, it's in the real world. And oftentimes, maybe not even directly related to what you think it is you do, right? So for us with the cheat sheets, one of the things that we've discovered through our own research is that a trigger moment that leads people on the path to buying from us, there's two big ones. Either they are a marketer for hire or uh, agency marketer and they land a new client that has an audience that they do not know very much about and they want to impress that client and they don't, they they need to learn about the audience quickly. So that's a trigger or they get hired on a new team into a new role or they get promoted and now they have to put together a strategy. And again, the, the team's underperforming. They know that there's a, Gap when it comes to really understanding customers, and they're looking for a solution to help fill that. Now thinking about that from our perspective right now we know that there are these trigger moments that are happening in our prospective customers life, and we can think about how we can get in front of people that might have been triggered. So for instance, we can use something like LinkedIn ads to get in front of people who've just accepted a new role, right? We can think about when somebody's accepting a new role and they're moving into this kind of more senior level marketing position, what else might they be doing at that same time? What other channels or communities are they hanging out in where they are trying to kind of like make sense of this new transition in their career where we might be able to get in front of them? So for instance, if we're looking at you know, tech marketers specifically, a lot of those people are joining communities like um, Dave Gerhardt has a community for um, B2B marketers. That's probably a channel where people are are hanging out when they start these new roles and now they're in this new position and they have to figure it out. So knowing what the triggers are helps you to figure out how to get in front of people sooner in less crowded channels before they start actively looking for something like you offer.
0: Are there any, I guess, pitfalls that uh, some marketers might say that, yes, this all sounds fantastic, it sounds good in theory, but some people get really clammed up or they, they they get really nervous in order to talk to a potential customer. Normally, we're just typing behind a screen and no one has to, we, we just worry about the end result later on if they're a, a decent marketer. But if, if what is sort of the, I guess the the pitfall or maybe a, a roadblock for for some of the people that want to do these interviews, but then they say, "Well, I, I don't have good equipment. I you know I'm afraid to talk to the customers." What what are some of those common pitfalls that they're running into that you can sort of help talk them through?
1: Yeah, there's a couple that really um, stand in the way of them making progress with interviews. One of the big ones is even when marketers want to do this work, is getting Buy in from either their clients or their teams to allow them <laughs> to do the work. And that is a common one. The teams say, oh, we don't need to talk to customers, we already know that. And they just expect that like, you can come in and like interview the client or interview the sales team and pull all the information you need to do your job out of their head. But one of the things I like to say is empathy doesn't travel through osmosis. Like we actually need to talk to customers and really understand them if we want to do our jobs really well. So one of the big ones is, okay, before I even get started, can I get buy-in to do this? Um, I've got a resource on my website that you can check out, which is what I like to call the buy-in burger, which is like an email template you can use to pitch your client or team on why this is worth doing. Um, I think you can find that at like, customercamp.co slash buy-in script. I think that's what it is. Or you'll have to find it one of the blog posts. Um, So that's a challenge. So now let's say that you've gotten buy-in and you're like, okay, now I actually have to have a conversation with a customer and I'm nervous. Again, your goal is not to like do some like stuffy phone interview with them. Like you would like, you know, your cable company calls you and they ask you like the same seven (laughs) questions
0: like are screaming at the auto person
1: (laughs) yeah and it's just like oh my god like no i don't have time for this like that is not what this is going to feel like at all this is going to feel like a conversation between you and another human being and it's gonna actually be really interesting and fun for them i have done hundreds of these and i would say that of let's say i'm just gonna like i'm doing some quick math in my head like i've done at least you know, three to four hundred since I started using this method specifically. Mm-hmm. And of those, I can remember maybe three that were just awkward. <laughs> like they were just like, ooh, this person's not giving me anything and they're not enjoying this. And I can tell and I feel like I'm in positioning them. So that's like a 1% like rate. The other ones, usually the people are actually really engaged because the interesting thing is that we don't think about our buying decisions deeply. We'd like to think that we do. We'd like to think that we're all logical and practical, but the reality is that like, studies show that 85% of what we decide to buy is made by these like subconscious emotional urges. So when you start talking to somebody and asking them these questions, kind of pulling out their, their story, they start learning things about themselves and they actually really enjoy it. So I would say, Go into it, know that you're going to probably not be the best at it right away, like any other skill, whether you're trying to do sales for the first time or like pitching yourself in a job interview, you're going to be like, Ooh, I don't know, I'm feeling uncomfortable with this. But it's so much easier because usually the person on the other end actually really enjoys the process. They enjoy learning with their own thought process.
0: And you're also, you're using the information that you get from these interviews and future marketing. So it's not just, you know, helping to, to shape the perception of the now, but it's also, I, I think I heard you say that it's sh- shaping uh, your email campaigns, the, the text that you use on your website, what different ways can you use the insight that you're getting from these customer interviews?
1: It's so, the information you're getting is so powerful because at the end of the day, again, like. What you're learning through these interviews is you're learning what are the trigger moments in a customer's like buying journey that might move them towards buying from us that helps you figure out channels then you're learning like you know what are the what are the pains that are pushing them forward the things that are making them want to make progress to make a change that's all of your marketing messaging right there that's kind of how to guides there's so much insight for content from there um you're learning about what are their goals like what does success look like to them that's helping you to shape your messaging so i know this particular interview method that i teach it's being used by conversion copywriters for email sequences, for sales pages, for positioning whole companies around a vision, like the whole sales narrative. It, goes, like, it can be used in so many ways. And that's why the buying journey interview is so powerful, because it's, there's so much intel in a buying journey that can inform decision making from a marketing hmm. perspective.
0: Now, to to flip the script a little bit, especially in the world of logistics that there are going there are bound to be issues that come up after you've secured that customer you know deliveries are going to fail um you're you're, you're not going to you know get that delivery in time uh, we're, we're seeing it across the supply chain across all industries knowing the insight that you get from the customer interview which you're usually conducting these ideally right after they become a customer but how are you adjusting the messaging and are you adjusting it any differently knowing that eventually you're going to fail this customer? Do you communicate that ahead of time? Um, is it is setting those expectations early? What does it look like after they've become a customer?
1: So I would say that the who you interview will depend on what you're trying to learn. So if you, are, if you have a problem with churn or cancellations, right, then you probably want to talk to your happiest customers, the ones that Are you want to find more of and you want to understand why they're so happy, right? And then you also want to talk to people who recently stopped using your service and Mm -hmm. you want to understand what led them to you in the first place. How did you not meet their expectations? So, if the reason why you're doing these interviews is to fix churn or to fix people leaving, then those are the conversations you want to have. If the Mm -hmm. people that you're taught, if your goal is to improve acquisition, improve discoverability, then there's a possibility when you're having these conversations with people like, yeah, like they might give you this glowing endorsement as like their whole buying journey that led them to you might be really interesting and insightful. And then they got disappointed when they used the product because mm-hmm. it didn't meet their expectations and they left. And so the insights that you're going to learn there is like, where was our messaging right in that we were attracting the right people or where did we over promise or miscommunicate what they should have expected in the way that we didn't satisfy them. So you Mm -hmm. can learn a lot that way too. But I'd say it really depends on how, it's kind of like, um, what I love about the buyer journey interview Mm -hmm. is it's a tool that you can use in a variety of different ways. But the, again, the way I teach it and the priority that people who buy for me have is typically, I want to get more customers. Like I want to figure out how to get more customers more effectively, like more predictably. And usually when the product team people buy it and they're thinking about how do I improve the product? It's my solution isn't really designed for them. Like, they, it can be used to inform product decisions, but there's a lot of other work that you need to do with buyers and people who are using your product, consuming your product that is separate from this buyer journey interview. So it can be a piece of your research. It's not the whole shebang like it can be for marketers.
0: Now, for a lot of marketing departments, and I use the word department loosely because in the world of logistics, you're lucky if you have a, a CMO or someone who's dedicated solely just to marketing. So for the folks out there who are juggling uh, you know, a, a lot of hats and a, a lot of different job duties throughout the day that want to know more about their customers, what are some of those small steps that they can take you know, from the jump that can help them you know, better off in the long run?
1: Such a good question. I would say again, like I'm, you know, I'm a small business owner myself too. Like I'm, I'm running the company. I'm also working with my husband on his on a startup company. We have a direct consumer food box that we do every month, and so I'm applying the same methodology to that business. Very different from the training world that I'm that my business is in. But what I would say is that you are going to get so much depth into what your company really does, that it's, it can help you shape so much. So for instance, with my husband's business, we started in the pandemic. Um, He had been working, he is a chef by trade, had spent the last seven years working in um, safety in the oil and gas sector after kind of like selling a bunch of restaurants wanting to get out of the restaurant industry. And then the pandemic happened and all these his job prospects went away and he'd been wanting to get back into food anyway. And so we thought, okay, like let's start, we hit to a restaurant, like the world's in quarantine, <laughs> what can we do? And we started Char Boys, which at the time was a barbecue box. So similar to like Hello Fresh or Good Food, but we were barbecue specifically. What we have learned since starting that back in June of 2020 from doing customer interviews and learning about our customer's buying journey is we are not Tuesday's dinner. We are not competing with HelloFresh or good food. We are a food experience that you share with your family and friends. It's a form of entertainment. You invite people over when you get a chair box. And so we reshaped our whole offering away from being multiple meals that could get you through the week to being one ridiculous epic meal. And it's the kind of thing that you get for you know somebody's birthday, or we've timed them around things that are happening. Like our last box was a St. Patty's Day box, one before that was uh, Super Bowl, this one is 420, which is a holiday. Super fun. <laughs> so when we figured that out, we're doing these interviews, right? So we figured out more about our customers buying journeys, but also helped us to shape the product. So as founders or teams that are busy, you're going to get so much good intel from talking to customers and really getting why they buy.
0: And, and what I loved from a recent interview that you did is you said once you started on this process that doing these interviews, you created a sort of a, a database of all of these insights and these triggers. And then once mm-hmm. you started hiring new employees, you would give that to them. And so that would help them hit the ground running a lot faster. Is is, is that sort of a, a fair statement that, you know, many companies out there can use this as, as insight and also future training for, for future employees as they scale? Totally, totally. So the
1: interview summary template that we give people, even if you don't create anything more in depth than handing them a few of those, when you bring somebody on, it gives you this really nice picture. One of the things um, Clayton Christensen says about a buyer interview using jobs to be done, this, this framework, is that like a persona is like a photograph of your customer. Whereas a job or understanding the buying journey, it's like a it's like a movie. So you see like the whole action that that customer has taken, and you understand them on this much deeper, faster level than you would just kind of like looking at, you know, a bunch of data on a screen about like, you know, this is the age demographics that our audience falls into, or this is where they're located. So even that that as an output is really helpful. The other thing I would encourage teams to do, especially if you're hiring marketers, is let them interview customers. (laughs) Like let them do one or two customer interviews in their first month because you're going to help them to get so much more empathy doing that than anything they can extract from your brain or read in a document. So let them have, have two conversations. Give them the, you know, teach them how to do This style of interview, just tell them to explore the buying journey and let them pull out those insights for themselves.
0: Now, now, what I love about everything that you just said is that you know, coupling that with you know. I guess safe to say that I have been binging all of your podcasts over the last week, and so one thing that I thought that was really interesting is that you said in a in a recent episode that using all of the knowledge that you gained from the clarity call sheets, and then plus your you have a podcast, you're you you have a podcast yourself, but you mm-hmm. have also transitioned into this phase of not being super, I guess, pumped about the podcast and wanting to change it in the future. So how do you balance the, the information that you're getting from customer interviews, the insight that you already have, and then that gut feeling whenever you're creating for the future?
1: Yeah, it's it's a balance, right? And the thing is that we, we're all looking for what might be an easy answer, but the reality is that clarity comes from engagement, right? Mm. So this is something Marie Forlio has said: like, you know, clarity comes from engagement, not thought. And what that means is you talk to customers, you, tr- you know, you pull and extract insight, and you figure out from that, what does this mean? And then you have to put things into the world and see how people respond to them. Right. And so whether that's our podcast, whether that's on the charboy side, you know, our first number of launches that we did, like you have to put things into the world, see how people respond to them. And then you need to go back and have those conversations again. So it is a It is a continuous process of learning because in most cases, unless you've created one single product that is never going to change, it's the only thing you've got. There's you know, nothing about it in terms of like who you target or how you target whatever is ever going to change, you're probably going to see your experience evolving, your product line evolving. And what that means is you need to go back and learn more. So with the podcast for us, you know, I will say that I have super high standards as lots of marketers do. And so my expectation as to what I want to put out there is like, I want something that's going to become, People's favored podcast mm. because we marketers are so short on time that and there's so much that they can listen to in ways that they can learn and content for them to consume that you you really don't have a chance of winning unless you are the favored right mm-hmm. like and so I I want to create that favorite podcast and as I would listen to what we were putting out there I was like it's good but it's it's not great like if I had to decide between listening to this or listening to something like Under the Influence with Terry O'Reilly. I'm not sure if you know that one. It's a um, he's it's a Canadian-based podcast, but it's so good. It's on the advertising world, and it's just fabulous. I'm like, I have the same 40 minutes to kill on my drive to work or whatever. How am I going to spend that time? Mm. And I think that as marketers, we need to step back and ask ourselves that. And the more you understand your audience, the more you also think about like, okay, like, what am I competing with? Because you're not just competing with other marketing podcasts, right? You're competing with like, you know, lifestyle <laughs> podcasts. Exactly. Or like a call catching up with their like mom over the drive. Right, so- you're
0: competing with uh, the Kim Kardashians of the world. Like you <laughs> you gotta be able to, to fit in there somehow. Or we, we got a couple minutes left post-COVID sort of changed everything what is one piece of marketing advice that you are taking into this post-COVID world as we slowly start to enter what that world looks like
1: yeah i mean i think that the post-COVID would be how adaptable people are and how quickly things can change and how as marketers and business owners we need to be equally adaptable. Um there's this great quote from Darwin and he says like you know it's not the strongest or the smartest that survive but it's those who are the most adaptable to change. Hmm. And there's no argument from anyone covid has changed everything. A lot of the changes that have come would have came anyway but probably at a much slower pace. And so our customers have new expectations, they have new challenges, they are going back into the world and looking at things in a different way. And we need to be responsive to that. So I would say the biggest takeaway for me is just how important it is to stay close to customers so that as their worlds are changing, we can adapt to continue to serve them and make sure that we're still really creating a lot of value for them.
0: Well said. Where can people find more of your work? Uh, probably the best spot to
1: like you know discover me would be through Twitter. I'm really active there, so uh, my my handle is at Kate Bour K A T E B O U R, and from there you'll you can find your way to my website and to some of the resources that I have there. I've got some great blog posts on audience research, and I'm doing um a cool. Uh, I'm doing a mock interview, if you'd like to see this actually done. I'll be doing it with Shopify. And we're going to be interviewing Rory Sutherland, who's one of the VPs at Ogilvy advertising. And he's also the author of like one of my favorite books. And we're going to be interviewing him about something that he recently bought. So if you want to see this done live, check that out.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. This was a wealth of information. And, and so hopefully people will, will go and check out more of your work because it really has helped not not just me, but but a ton of other people out there who are trying to figure out, you know, not just the marketing side of things, but what actually makes people tick, which is ultimately part of, of all of our jobs. So so thank you again. And uh, I'll be on the lookout for, for more products and tweets from you in the future. So thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank all right, that was a really great, impactful interview with Caitlin. so hopefully that you you guys enjoyed that that breakdown of what exactly goes into a customer interview and how you can adapt that to your job functions and 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 what your your ideal customer segments sort of fall into, and then using a lot of the data that we talked about. Earlier in the show, in order to apply that to your your processes and, and, and how you plan to tackle. Even if, you know, like a business owner like myself, I only have a few hours in the day to work on my business. Usually I'm working in my business and I'm working with clients and I'm working on their projects. So knowing how much time we all have in the day to even digest content that's outside of just normal sort of life and business, that's a really impactful way in order to know what are the triggers for your customers in order to buy from you and then how you can create content around those triggers and then ultimately measuring the success of all of the above? Because it really, once all of those things are clicking, then it really helps you evolve, not only now, but in the future. So it, it just keep up with the learning and and, and keep up with, with how you're approaching all of your different strategies and be willing to change because... Like we said earlier, you know, it, with, with ebook conversions, that, that was a hot marketing tactic, you know, even five years ago. And a lot of companies are still doing it today, despite the conversion rate being less than 1% of those ebook buyers eventually becoming customers. So just knowing that off the bat uh, it should help you adjust some of those different marketing tactics and, and how you're approaching those tactics to begin with. All right, we got a couple minutes left. Just wanted to run through some quick fun stories. Uh, One in which being the top two gifts last year that B2B companies sent to their customers. And I thought this was pretty funny because the first few items on this list are kind of all the same. So the first up on the list of what two gifts that B2B companies sent out were cookies, So as you know, you're you're sitting at home and you're already not really going anywhere, doing anything. So you're eating a lot of cookies. Another gift on this was a was brownies, gift baskets, snack boxes, and artisan chocolates. But the top one on the list was cookies. Uh, The next, the second one on the list was virtual wine tastings, which I thought was really creative. I I haven't I've only done one virtual happy hour, and it was a ton of fun. Learned you know an amazing amount of information, and it made this virtual conference uh really fun to participate in and, and really fun to you know make a different twist on just sitting in front of you know the the computer screen and watching a video like what you're kind of doing now uh you know maybe in the future we'll have a, a virtual uh bourbon tasting during the show and, and and talk about that i i probably have to clear that with the freight waves team but we'll we'll see if we can make that happen but that was second on the list for virtual wine tastings um and then the third one on the list which i thought was a little surprising was succulents i i mean i those poor succulents, like what if you're sending it to somebody that is not really a plant person? So how would you really know if they're gonna, you're sending that succulent off to its death or not? So I thought that that was a pretty interesting list of the top gifts that customers sent in the b2b world back in 2020 i say that as if it's a long time ago but that about does it for today's show a reminder that we have the first two episodes with alvin brooke and shay dixon already posted to the podcast feeds be on the lookout for that just search cyberly on the different podcast apps whatever podcast player is your favorite you can also go to youtube and search cyberly on freight waves you'll be able to find all of the videos including today's show up on that platform you can also find me And my social media platforms, just go to digitaldispatch.io. That's where all my social media platforms are linked there. I won't go through just, you know, randomly talking about all of the places where you can find me, but I'm on most social media apps. And where I put most of my effort in is TikTok and LinkedIn. We'll be back next week. And we're actually going to be talking about a company that has an in-house content creation studio. So be on the lookout for that next Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Once again, my name is Blythe Bromleave, and you are watching Cyberly. and I will see you real soon.